Before we get started today, I wanted to tell everyone about a podcast that I was a guest on last week called Pop Culturally Deprived. The podcast is by our dear friend, Mandy K. Ottaway. She watches or reads cult hits and classics from pop culture for the first time and then discusses them with a superfan. Matthew Vose is her pop culture Sherpa and co-host. They had me on last week to talk about one of my favorite movies, Dead Poets Society. They are awesome, and we want you to check them out. Yeah, and I'm going to be on their show sometime in the next couple months for one of my favorite movies, The Graduate. You can find Mandy and Matthew at eloquentgushing.com or check out our show notes for the links. And now, on with the show. Anya, aka Strangely Literal. And I'm Alan, and this is Shadows and Shamblers. Please stand as you are able for this week's reading, which comes to us from the book of Zariah Virginia. Truth is not what people want to hear. Now you may be seated. This week we watched American Gods Episode 2, The Secretive Spoon. So what did you think, Alan? It's good. It's very, very good. <laughs> yeah, I uh, thought so too, actually. Yeah, this was way better, right? I Yeah, I loved it. I feel like it had less to do, right? The pre- premise has already been established, so all it really has to do is tell its own story, which is a much easier task. But yeah, I felt like the pacing worked better. Everything just felt like it made a lot more sense. Um, and in particular, I felt like we got a much better look at the character of Shadow in this episode. And I felt like his character had a lot more emotional depth and Ricky Whittle got to do a lot more acting. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. He was, And it was acting that wasn't centered around the dialogue necessarily. It was a lot of acting like on his face and his body posture. Yeah, it was fantastic. I loved the transitions between humor and drama there was a lot of funny stuff. There was a lot of really big stuff still that we got in the premiere. But this, it felt, I don't know, the transitions just felt more natural. It was the ups and downs felt better paced. And uh, I was much more comfortable the whole time. Yeah, I totally agree. So before we get started, let's talk about this week's creators. So last week we did compliment the music, but we forgot to mention the composer. So that is Brian Reitzel, um, and he is the composer and did all of the original music for the show. And again, this week I thought it was great. And actually the music had a little bit different character this week. It was, it sounded like less dissonant and modern but was still really effective and beautiful, and especially there was a ton of great cello music this week going on in the background. Brian was also the music supervisor for Hannibal, which is the show that Brian Fuller created and ran. This episode was directed by David Slade again, who directed the pilot, and was also co-written by the showrunners Brian Fuller and Michael Green. We talked a little bit about Michael Green's screenwriting credits last episode, but this week we also wanted to point out that he created a show called Kings that also starred Ian McShane, the actor who plays Wednesday. So let's go ahead and uh, remember what happened this week in the show. In 1697, a slave summons Mr. Nancy to help him escape. Instead, the god convinces the slaves to kill their captors. 
and themselves, leaving him as the only survivor to wash onto the American shore. In the present, Shadow tells Wednesday about the technical boy and dreams of his dead wife. In the morning, Shadow cleans out his old house and finds proof of Laura's affair. Mr. Wednesday picks him up when he is done and the two head toward Chicago. When they stop for supplies, the televisions start talking to Shadow. The goddess media offers Shadow a chance to follow her and warns that if he isn't careful, he will end up as a sacrifice. Meanwhile, Bilquis continues to gather victims and power as she contemplates all she has lost and might yet regain. Later, Shadow and Wednesday come to the home of the Zariah sisters, who agree to host them for dinner. When their brother, Chernabog, comes home, he demands that Wednesday leave. He challenges Shadow to a game of checkers. Shadow proposes a bet. If he wins, Chernabog must join them. But when he loses, Chernabog prepares to claim his prize, Shadow's life. So I want to start off by talking a little bit about depictions of gender in the show and male and female characters generally, and then male and female gods and goddesses specifically. So it seems to me like the show is saying something about gods and goddesses and the different things that feed them. So we've seen thus far depictions of three masculine gods, Odin from the Viking prologue in the first episode. And then in this Mm -hmm. episode, Mr. Nancy on the slave ship, and then Chernabog. And all three of them seem to be really fed in some way by violence. So the Vikings, in order to get Odin's favor, are just slaughter each other. Anansi seems to be getting something out of encouraging the slaves to slaughter all of the people on the ship. And, you know, regardless of how you feel about whether the slave runners deserve that or not, Anansi seems to be getting some benefit secondhand out of this violence. Um, And then Cernabog also seems to really get a lot of pleasure out of killing the cows and anticipation of killing Shadow. And then sort of on the other side, Bilquis is really the only goddess that we see gaining power or being worshipped in any way, and she's being worshipped through sex. Yeah, so I guess that's sort of like gender, a gendered vision of power, where men get their power through dominance and violence and killing, and women get their power through sex and seduction. Hmm. So in studying like ancient religions and stuff, that is the source material that Neil Gaiman is adapting. I think he's a little bit limited by what's there. It's not exactly an excuse. I don't I don't want to excuse what you're saying at all because I think you're totally right. But it's definitely true that in ancient civilizations, female gods tended to be centered around fertility. Um Yeah. And so that's I guess in the book more than the TV show so far, it comes across as not just being about sex, but about like physicality and 
genitals and yeah, being more fertility oriented, which I think is slightly different than sex. Maybe that's just a modern perspective to take on it, but um, yeah, you're right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I, maybe there, I'm not a comparative religions person. I have no expertise in this. So I don't know whether that's sort of a valid broad brushstroke to paint or not. You know, it's like uh, people have criticisms of, like, say, Game of Thrones, right? Where Mm -hmm. they say, well, there's all this um, rape, there's lots of violence against women. And then George R.R. Martin's answer to that tends to be, well, that's how it was back then, which is kind of crazy, right? Because he is the master of the universe and he says what it's like. And there weren't like dragons back then and crazy magical people. So he can do whatever he wants, obviously. And it's kind of the same thing with Neil Gaiman, right? He is adapting these ancient gods, but that doesn't mean that he can't do it in in some other way that maybe isn't quite so gendered. I'm not sure if the show is saying anything necessarily about women or... What do you think about that? Like, about their source of power? Are the women as powerful as the men in your opinion or are they powerful in a different way i guess there aren't any female characters yet that have a sort of complex internal mind that we can tell i guess they kind of tried this week with bill quist but honestly it didn't really work for me i had no idea what was going on when she was staring at the jewelry in the museum it sounded like you had more ideas about that maybe you can help me figure (laughs) out what was going on there but yeah i would say thus far i think women are mostly either objectified or extremely sexualized or in the case of laura i would say she's less of a character than sort of like a hole where a character might be at some point. Yeah. Yeah. A hole where a character might be. That's yeah, totally. Did you understand what they were trying to do while she was staring at the jewelry and sort of like making the body of a woman appear underneath that? They spend a lot of time focusing close up on the actress's face and from what was going on and from what she was doing with her face, I just had no idea what I was supposed to take away from that. Yeah, I don't I'm I'm not really sure either. Uh, my guess was that <laughs> like it was that whole thing was a little bit confusing because I couldn't tell if it looks like she's in a museum, right? But I couldn't tell if like she was having sex in a different part of the museum and then she went in there or if this was like another day or something like that. Because nothing about the music or anything changes except the scenery. So I don't think that's like her personal collection in her basement or something like that. She's looking at a a display or something. So these are real artifacts. I kind of assume that the statue is supposed to be a statue of her. Right. I think so. But then I don't know where to go beyond that. Yeah. And she does seem to be gathering power, but we don't know what side she's on at all. Um, She certainly seems to be one of the old gods, but she's... Yeah. It's intriguing because we talked about this last week. She doesn't really come back in the book. So to have her in play kind of changes the story, which team she's going to go with or what her agenda even is. Because she's meeting these people, I think they say, through online dating. 
And so that, yeah, yeah that's a little bit of... Oh, like, that's true. That is like a mix of old and new. Right. She might be, she could be on another team, you know? Compared to Wednesday, who th- immediately throws both phones out the window and is just like having right. none of that technology bullshit. Right. Yeah, and he calls the the technical boy a little asshole, and uh, and he knows all about. This. So he, I mean, he's totally picked his side. He's not with the new gods at all. But Bilquis is up for grabs, and we don't know what's going on with her. It, it was interesting that she seems to be pansexual. Um, yeah, I did like that they had her swallowing up men and women. Yeah, it was weird to have the uh, the boner guy in the sky. Uh, I wasn't sure if if the sky stuff was the inside of Bilquis. Like, is in that the, like... you mean the vagina nebula? <laughs> yeah, I guess is that what it is? Because don't we we kind of transfer? It's not like we zoom inside of Bilquis and then we see this. We kind of see it and then we see Bilquis. That's the no, transition. but there's there's definitely like. A vulva made out of stardust. Mm, or like yeah, okay. Gas between okay. the stars at one point. I could see that. I remember that. Okay. Yeah. I I thought it was what those people were experiencing. So I guess that's like where you end up if you go to bed with Bilquis is like you're in the stars or something. Uh, it that- seems like not a bad afterlife as, you know, all things considered. Yeah. Like it seemed okay. Um, but I don't know what she's doing. And I don't know what that jewelry was about. Like I don't recognize that stuff. I'm not really and, and I don't want to misrepresent my knowledge. I'm an enthusiastic reader of of uh ancient religions. I'm not like an expert on antiquities and stuff. I when I saw that statue, the idol, I feel like that is not a real thing based on anything. Uh mm-hmm. usually ancient idols of of uh, female gods and women do not typically like cup their breasts and stuff. That's not a thing. And there's not really a whole lot of ancient sex gods in general. They're mostly, mm-hmm. like I said before, they're mostly fertility gods. And the Queen of Sheba was not, I mean, she was worshipped and, and venerated, but not like they're showing it in the show, which is fine because the show is the show. So uh-huh. I have a question. Uh-huh. How did you feel about the candle metaphor? Did you like it or did you think it was too heavy handed? Hmm. I like the music and, and the creepiness of everything that's going on. The slow motion movement of the flame. We get a lot of close ups like this in this episode where there's like close ups of liquids with bubbles in them. The mm-hmm. coffee, the blood, the wax kind of like swirling and bubbling as the flame goes out. I think it looks amazing yeah i will say i kind of complained about the rain cgi at the end of episode one yeah but starting fresh at the beginning of episode two with the the like blood splattering and the rain coming down i actually really liked it i'm revising my opinion maybe (laughs) i think this episode has made us happier in general we have more goodwill for the show i guess initially i wasn't super into the candle metaphor it seemed a little trite somehow you know, their lives being snuffed out like a flame. But when you add in the fact that they were the ones that lit the candle and candles as a method of worship across lots of religions, I feel like sort of the mixing of the metaphor with the literalness of the candle kind of makes it okay and redeems it in some way. 
What do you think right after the candles that, by the way, I, I love that. That's awesome. What do you think like right after the candle goes out, we get this, there's like a high shot of her entire body. She's just laying there and we get closer and closer to her face. And she looked like really sad to me. It seemed like a moment of vulnerability to me. Like after she was so powerful, I wasn't sure if she's like missing the thrill of the worship or if she's tuckered out or if, or if she's like unhappy with herself in some way, or like, I only got one when I used to get 30 or something like, what do you think is going on there when we get a close up of her face? You know, I didn't really think that much about it. I think I just sort of assumed it was a god-sized version of Afterglow. Okay. <laughs> Did she look happy to you? She doesn't look happy, but she kind of looks peaceful. Okay. I don't know. I'll have to go back and watch a second time or a third time. I was just see. trying to interpret it. We get no dialogue, you know, in the whole thing. And uh, Yeah. There's no, it's real mysterious what's going on with Vilquis. They're not tipping their hand very much. Yeah. But I know, to me, she looked sad and, and it made me think of, uh, of Shadow in his bed uh, earlier. What did you think about Shadow crying? I actually really liked the depiction of Shadow crying and that he's clearly this very strong masculine character, but he's not afraid and the show isn't afraid to show him crying. I mean, he's going through some heavy shit. And I also really like the way both the book and the show particularly handle Shadow reacting to the fact that his wife cheated on him. Mm. I think a way that this narrative goes in a lot of stories is that you find out that your wife is cheating on you and it's a crazy betrayal that basically wipes everything else off the board and the response to that is, you know, violence and absolute anger. And obviously Shadow's really upset about it. We see that his reaction to finding the picture of Robbie's cock. <laughs> but it he's not letting it define his whole relationship with Laura. And I feel like the fact that Laura cheated on him, like, yes, it's a personal betrayal, but it's not a threat to his masculinity. He's not responding to it in a hyper-masculine way. He's responding to it in just a very genuine emotional way. Right. It's not like you took my stuff, and which you're right is the, I think that's the typical response. Like, it's not about the person of the wife. It's like you took my thing and now I'm going to hurt you because of it. But shadow, yeah. like when he's in the house, you're right. When right before he looks through all the stuff and finds the phone, he sees her everywhere. And it's clear that like, he still loves her and yeah. he's hurting. Yeah. He misses her. I love that part. I thought it was so good. If you watch I, and when he's in the, uh, I think it's when he wakes up from the dream uh, that he has of her. On Ricky Whittle's face, I don't know, you know, what was going on, but I was really impressed because the light is low. It's nighttime and stuff, but you can see the tear streaks from the corners of yeah. his eyes down his cheeks. And I was like, oh, that's so good. He was crying in his sleep while he's having this dream. I love it. It was, that was great. So now that we've talked a little bit about men and women and how they're portrayed, I'm curious what you think about the way the show represents 
sort of the male gaze and the female gaze from the viewer's perspective, because obviously Bill Quist is a beautiful woman and we get to see a lot of her body in the show. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's really highlighted. And then I guess the counterpoint to that maybe <laughs> is this kind of gross picture of like just a disembodied dick, which <laughs> I think yeah. the general consensus is that like even people who are really into dick in other situations, like just the dick pic is not, doesn't really do it for most people. Right. Or particularly most women. And I guess we do get a little bit of a female gaze on Shadow. Like, he also is a very beautiful man. And the show doesn't shy away from from showing his physicality. Yeah, he takes a bath naked. Yeah. I don't think we get to see everything, but but we see most of them. I mean, I, I think in general, women are being objectified a little bit more than men. But this feels so standard to me in the culture that like this show is par for the course i would say we do get a little bit more with shadow but i don't i don't think we're any other male characters we're not really sexualizing them to the degree that like we see when we see laura through shadow's eyes she's kind of it's not hypersexual but she's splayed out on the bed and she's looking at him longingly and she's she's a little bit sexualized as well i think i don't what do you think about that do you do you think it's more or do you think it's the same no i mean i kind of agree with your take that it's not super progressive but not super regressive either i guess we'll kind of have to see going forward i'm going to be disappointed if by the end of the show there's not some glistening god with a six-pack that gets objectified <laughs> at least half as much as bill Quist. right but I'm going to give them some time to throw that in. <laughs> Maybe the technical god is going to rip his shirt off. He's not going to be as skinny as he looks. He's going he's gonna <laughs> to look amazing. Is that progressive? Do you think necessarily if we, if we get like an equally sexualized gaze on men as we do on women? Or would it be more progressive to focus on character over body and image? I mean, I think you want to do both. Mm -hmm. um, I agree. I mean, I guess sort of going back to last episode, I think the way that Audrey was portrayed was really nice because, I, I mean, she's trying to get Shadow to sleep with her, but she stays close the whole time and it's not sexy in the moment. And they could have done that a very different way. And it's all about her pain, right? It's all yeah. about what's going on inside of her. That's a really good example. Yeah, that's what I want. I don't mind there being uh, sex and naked people that can't be, it can't be the focus, you know, naked bodies can't get you through. They kind of do this on Game of Thrones. We keep bringing up Game of Thrones. I don't know why we're throwing Game of Thrones under the bus. It's a fine show, but I mean, they do this on Game well, of Thrones, like it, though, right? It makes sense to use Game of Thrones as a point of comparison because it's a prestige show on a cable network. Yeah. And it's fantasy. It's like the most well-known fantasy show at right. this point. If Game of Thrones didn't exist, I do not think American Gods would exist. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And they do that on that show, right? Where there's just naked people for the sake of naked people. And it's like, they're just off in the background. They're just doing it. And and it's like, yeah, HBO, man, adult show. This is for grownups, right? And it's like, yeah, I. but I really want to know like about people's pain and joy. I'm they can have sex too, that's fine, but it's a little bit boring. 
Yeah, at least with Bilquis, I mean, that is the point to some extent. Like, Mm. it's sort of, for her, sex isn't in the background. It is the foreground. And so that kind of redeems it as long as they end up doing something with it in the long run. Right. Yeah, it's about power for her. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about one of the other big themes that we approach in this episode. There is a lot of talk in this episode about lies and lying versus the truth and versus like objective reality. Shadow has like an entire freak out when he goes to Walmart, right? (laughs) Where media (laughs) talks to him and he's like, what is going on? And he comes back to uh, Wednesday in the diner and he's he's like what is happening like lucy talk to me this is not okay and and wednesday tells him either you're crazy or the world's crazy pick one figure it out man mm-hmm. and and also before he goes right wednesday tells him like here's a thousand dollars either bring me receipts or don't steal from me too much and he's like i'm not gonna steal from you and he says if you can't take care of yourself how are you gonna take care of me wednesday wants to be lied to it's it's uh surprising and bizarre and i love it well but he wants to be lied to in a very predictable way a lie that is easily seen through and yes. anticipated this and it made me think of what you talked about last episode about uh, a con man and knowing that you're being conned and kind of like going along with it like wednesday expects him to to con him right yeah it it's a thread that moved all the way through this episode i think it's really the only thing that ties the episode together as a whole, because it goes through all the way to the checkers, where Chernabog is way more straightforward. Like if you compare Wednesday and Chernabog, Wednesday comes with gifts. He's charming everyone. He's oh, you're a beautiful woman, and and uh, Zoria Vechenaya gives him this look like, please, man, come on. I know what <laughs> yeah. you're doing. And Chernabog's having none of it. He throws the lamp at him when he's like, I got you cigarettes and cheese, man, your favorite. He's get out of my house. I know what you're doing. You're trying to draw me back into it. I don't want it. Chernabog is super upfront while Wednesday is very much the con man and he's playing his games. And the checkers, he's, you know, he says, Oh, everybody loves chess, but I like checkers. And checkers is a way more straightforward game. It's a way more honest game in a way you're not really going to be tricky in checkers Mm -hmm. it's all about the moment it's just a thread that i picked up all the way through did you notice this at all when you were watching the show not particularly but now that you've pointed it out i definitely agree and i guess if the the last episode was all about fucking up shadow's life to the point in which he agrees to go with Wednesday. This episode is about having him buy into the con and this view of the world one level deeper, right? Because sort of mm. at the end of last episode, he was like, yeah, I'll be your guy. Like, pay me. I'll ride in your car with you. And then at the end of this episode, he's like, yeah, I'll play a game of checkers for my life. <laughs> right. It's a, it's, a, it's a buy-in on a different level. And I guess... Wednesday even says that at one point when he's talking to one of the sisters. I mean, easing him into it. Right. When she says, oh, he doesn't understand our world or something like that. 
yeah, he's bought the premise. I think that's why I'm more comfortable in this episode, too, because he's finally, like, bought into the show. And now we can do the thing that we're doing and yeah. uh, and tell this story. So we're not having to climb that cliff wall. We can very nicely escalate the conflicts and introduce new characters. He knows that the world is crazy and he's accepted it. He's choosing the truth in that way, but he's also choosing to go along with Wednesday's con, which is a lie. Right. All of this stuff with the like the Zariah sisters and Chernabog was all folklore that was handed down by, you know, word of mouth through stories that you would tell your children at bedtime from people who couldn't read to children who wouldn't be able to read. And the stories change so much over time that we don't really have a good record of this stuff. But I think it's interesting to have these folklore gods as immigrants in the story because if you think about it, like you're never going to have a king immigrate to America, right? Yeah, you have way more to lose and not as much to gain. Right. But at the same time, it can't be the poorest people, right? Because how would they get here? So you get this weird group of people who want change but are not at the top of the pile. And those people tended to not be involved in the professional priesthood or anything like that. So they were not sophisticated religious people. They would have folklore traditions around things like leprechauns or powerful constellations. I think it's really interesting the way that Neil Gaiman constructed his universe, where the power of the gods comes from the people, just like political power comes from the people in America. The gods that we get are not like any of the really big religious players. We're dealing with either these nebulous concepts like media, technology, or we're dealing with highly specific but narrow and not well-known people from stories, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And I hadn't really thought about it that way before. Although the whole idea that the god's power comes from people's belief I call that the Tinkerbell hypothesis and that that's the foundation for the book. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't believe in fairies, they'll all die. Right. That like that there's some sort of power emanating from belief. But you're right. It is the gods that we see are not like the head honchos of the pantheon. And they're not the people that the aristocrats worship. No well-to-do person in Ireland was worshiping Mad Sweeney, right? <laughs> it was like, yeah, <laughs> it's you know nobody worships Chernabog. They tell their children stories about how Chernabog will come and get you if you don't do this and that. His characters are not based in aristocracy. They're not people who were ever on the top of the pile to begin with. Although I will say. Yeah, the having a monotheistic god running around in this universe kind of ruins the Tinkerbell hypothesis. It's like, <laughs> right. It makes it problematic. Yeah. Although I I think we are going to get a Jesus at some point, but I guess that's probably a whole nother can of worms. Yes. So back in episode zero, we were talking about the Brian Fuller interview where he was talking about portrayals of immigrants in this story versus the immigration situation in America and in some parts of Europe right now. 
when I I've kept that in my mind since we talked about it watching these first two episodes. And I'm not sure that we are getting a compassionate portrayal of immigrants. What do you think about that? It's not necessarily at this point a compassionate portrayal of immigrants, but it's certainly a messy one. And it's certainly a view of our nation's history that's centered around most of us as immigrants and having a realistic look at the faults of that history. The whole introduction to this episode is basically a lament about slavery and... And showing, it's a very black perspective, I guess. I loved the line from Mr. Nancy who said, uh, you don't even know you're black yet. You just think you're people. Oh, that was so good. so biting. Yeah. That really emphasizing like the dehumanizing nature of it and that black rage is totally justified and that slavery was so dehumanizing and such a horrible thing that lasted for so long that like, yeah, it's better to light your boat on fire and drown in the ocean (laughs) than walk into that situation knowingly. So that kind of parallels the construction of the previous episode where we also had a prologue of people coming over in a boat and a lot of them died in the first one, all of them died in the second one. It's kind of what made me think of this question because like these are immigrants, kind of. Well, yeah, a lot of I feel like we should make note that like in the the discourse about immigration recently, there's been a lot of pushback against the like we're all immigrants message because calling the descendants of slaves immigrants is kind of a different kind of insult on its own. And then, of course, the Native Americans as well. Sure. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't know if maybe we're two episodes in. I don't know if this is Brian Fuller you know, saying something snappy to the media that puts a a light on his show, or if this is a theme that will manifest itself more over time. We should talk about Mr. Nancy, because we already brought him up. And I want to talk about the prologue. So, okay, first of all, I want to just say that you talked about in the last episode hating prologues. And I'm going to go on record as being someone who really doesn't mind prologues that much. I know that's like kind of blasphemy in the circle that we run in. <laughs> but like, I don't mind a prologue. I kind of, going back to Game of Thrones, like I kind of like George R. R. Martin's thing where every single book starts out with like, there's one chapter of a person that you don't know and you'll never meet again getting killed. And like, that's his prologue for every book. And I think when you do it in sort of a repetitive way like that, it becomes more of a framing device and a series of vignettes that kind of says something separate but related and makes you think at the main text a little differently. And so assuming that they keep doing this for every episode, introducing it with a new coming to America story, I kind of like the little mini prologues at the beginning of every episode as a framing device. I was more okay with it this time for the same reason, because I felt like Oh, okay, we're going to do this every time. That's the signal that I got. And so yeah. I was like, okay, I guess this is this is what we'll do. Yeah, I'm I think that Lonnie Diane Rich has converted me to the no prologue policy in general. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know if you've ever read Patrick Rothfuss's Kingkiller Chronicle. Um I love the beginning of those books, and it's the same kind of thing as you're saying about Game of Thrones that 
he he starts the books talking about a silence of three parts and that the deepest silence was his it feels like an invocation for the story it feels like a a once upon a time like that's not a waste Mm -hmm. of my time to say once upon a time to to draw me into the story and say a long time ago in a galaxy far far away and i think that's what the show is doing it's like hey this is not a normal show where everything is grounded and you're gonna like Please remember, Mr. Nancy is here. He's walking around to jazz. He's wearing a suit. We are breaking walls. We are, this is like bold choices are being made right up front. And it's giving you a signal. It's a heads up that you're in a crazy story. Yeah. I wasn't sure how I felt about the future telling in this scene. I really loved it in the moment. I thought it made great poetry and like worked as a unit itself but none of the other gods that we've seen so far have this future knowledge right or that kind of anachronism like odin in the prologue from the first episode we don't even see him physically as a god we just know that he's there and yeah he has no sort of insight into the future of scandinavians in north america right and yeah, and even the Zoraya sisters who are reading coffee grounds and stuff don't seem to know exactly what's going to happen in the future the way that he is forecasting 200, 300 years ahead. And again, it makes me question if this is part of, because we see that academic that we mentioned in the first episode. Yeah. We see him writing and I'm like, so is this his commentary in Mr. Nancy's mouth? Or I mean, this feels very Mr. Nancy. Oh, yeah. Well, okay, but isn't Anansi the spider? Isn't he a trickster god? That is correct. He is a folklore god from uh, African tribes. The fun stories are all Anansi's stories. He gets to play the tricks on the on the more powerful creatures, and he gets to come out ahead. So that's totally Mr. Nancy's character. I wasn't seeing the trickster spirit in this. This just seemed like vengeance and rage. I agree. Which is fine, but it's not the same. It it felt out of character, and, and I kind of reserved my judgment because perhaps they are tilting the character in another direction from the book. Maybe. I do want an accounting, though, the next time that we meet Mr. Nancy, and certainly we will. I don't think that's a spoiler to say. You don't hire Orlando Jones for a cameo in in a prologue. I would like there to be like some kind of acknowledgement that he knew about 200 years of history. Like, does he still know 200 years from the present story that we're telling with Shadow? That could be a world-building problem. Yeah. But I think it's something worth keeping an eye on. I also think it's interesting that... So now we've had two episodes that each start with the prologue of a different god arriving in America. And we've had two episodes that end with Shadow's life being imperiled in a very racialized way. So I wonder if either or both of those things is going to continue throughout the series. Hmm. Yeah, because he says you're my only black friend. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. There is kind of a cliffhanger thing going on, right? I guess that's also a prestige television trope at this point. Yeah, I almost wish that they had 
ended the episode with Shadow agreeing to play the game for his life, but not actually losing yet, and that we left that for the beginning of episode three. That's interesting. I like that. Where Because then it, it puts the emphasis on the fact that he needs to make the choice, right? Yeah, it puts the emphasis on the choice. And I think it, it does. It makes it more of a game changer than a cliffhanger. Yeah, I think that's right. You should be an editor on this show. <laughs> I should. <laughs> Call up <laughs> Brian Fuller. Give him my number. Yeah. Come on, Brian Fuller. So I'm curious what you thought about Jillian Anderson as media or I Love Lucy in the story and i feel like first of all we should just comment on i didn't even realize it was jillian anderson until the second time i watched the episode like the first time through i knew the voice sounded super familiar but the makeup was so good yeah she's definitely cosplaying i love lucy right and (laughs) maybe the black and white kind of helps to with the illusion where you Mm -hmm. couldn't quite tell it was her that's an iconic part of the book in my mind. Like I always think about I Love Lucy talking to Shadow when I think about this book. Mm-hmm. And so I'm glad that they put it in. I really, really love this version of it compared to what's in the book. So to compare these two, in the book, it happens in a motel and Shadow is alone. And to have this mm-hmm. happen in a public place and Shadow keeps glancing around to see like, is anybody else seeing this? Am yeah. I losing it? There's like a tension to that, that it was so interesting. And her performance was really good. She has this dark edge to her. There's something that's almost flat about it. Like she's trying to be persuasive and seductive, but not actually succeeding. Yeah. It, It feels almost mechanical in a way, which irritated me at first. And then I realized like, oh, no, wait, that's probably on purpose. And then the second time through, I actually really loved it. I love, too, in the shopping scene, how we see him pick up all of these items and we don't know what they're for and he doesn't know what they're for and it all just seems so random. And then as they're handing out the gifts to each person, like, suddenly it all makes sense. And it's sort of like it's clicking for the viewer at the same time as it is for Shadow. Chekhov's romance novel. Yeah. <laughs> I love how Zoraya Utrnaya doesn't say anything the whole time, but her face is just so perfect. (laughs) I really like that moment where she looks, she sees Shadow and she like kind of jumps because he says he'll go to the store with her. And then she looks at the book and looks at him and she's all embarrassed. And Cernabog was so good. I mean, he's so gross, but he's just so (laughs) magnetic. Like you can't take your eyes off of him whenever he's on the screen. Are you familiar at all with Peter Stormare? No. He's the actor who who plays Chernabog. And I know him from Armageddon. He was like a crazy cosmonaut. Oh my god. I Yeah, I totally remember that. I watched that movie a lot growing up. Yeah, that's the same dude. <laughs> he's, okay. uh, he's in Fargo. He plays a psychopath. So this is kind of like his shtick, right? He's the crazy guy. But Chernabog, he is kind of a fixture in American culture, though. And I was aware of him before I ever read the book. Like when I read the book for the first time, I was like... Oh, it's the guy from Disney Fantasia. Wait, where in Fantasia is he? I don't know the specific song. Uh, Maybe I'll throw it in the show notes. But there's one part of Fantasia, it's very scary, Um, you know, for like a Walt Disney thing that he actually made himself. There's like this 
uh, satanic looking beast. He's got burning eyes and he's all black, but in Slavic mythology, they, there's not much known about him in general. Uh, Chernobog is not like, it's more of a name and there's not like good lore. Oh, I was just going to say, um, he goes on and on and on and I kept on expecting to get tired of him, but his performance is so arresting that you just don't. Oh, he's fantastic. Yeah. And I love all the little reactions that you get from everybody around the table during that whole monologue. I think that's part uh-huh. of what makes it work. Like Wednesday kind of does a double take as he's about to do a shot when he mentions checkers and the look on Shadow's face. Wednesday's face the whole time as uh, Shadow's getting into the game. Like Wednesday knows exactly where this is going and mm-hmm. his yeah, you see like his face perk up a couple times and he's trying to give Shadow a way out, but Shadow's not going to take it. Do you think he is? He, I, I felt like he's like somehow honoring the rules of the universe or something. He's like, well, it's your choice, your free will. I can't make you do this. You, if you're going to enter into a covenant with a god, you have to do it yourself. Like, oh, oh, I see. So you think... You think Wednesday wanted him to do it, but he has to enter it into his free will? Yeah, like when he's taken the drinks from Wednesday in the previous episode, I feel like there's some kind of ritual going on there that we don't understand. That's how I read it anyway. I don't know if that's like officially the rules of the universe or something, but it feels like a, a covenant is formed and it feels like there's some kind of bigger thing going on when he's playing that checker game to me. Oh, no, I definitely think there's something bigger going on when he's playing the checker game. But I just I guess I took Wednesday's apprehension on Shadow's behalf as genuine. I thought that Wednesday didn't want Shadow to enter into the contract because he knew he would lose the game. Mm. I Yeah, I don't know. It could go either way. Yeah, they are kind of friends, and he needs Shadow, right? Yeah. So, yeah, he probably doesn't want him to get killed. And he tells him, like, there'll be no half measures. Like, don't do it unless you're that good. Yeah. But he does it anyway. He doesn't listen. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He says he's coming with gifts. I feel like that's some kind of traditional, like, Slavic thing. I don't know if that's true, but that's what I felt like it was doing but do you think maybe he's like offering them like are these offerings to gods or is it like a little both that was how i interpreted it more as a religious offering than as a cultural tradition but i yeah i don't know that much about slavic culture so yeah me neither um and also cloris leachman you know guzzling vodka is fantastic yeah i would watch that oh my god that was so good (laughs) So, something we haven't talked about yet, and maybe we should pull the curtain back a little bit for the people listening, is we are recording these before the episodes have officially dropped because Stars has provided us with screeners. Thank you, Stars. Yeah, and thank you. Our screeners do not have the main titles, you know, the opening sequence. So we had to go outside of the regular episode to watch the main titles, but I did want to talk about them. I'll let you go ahead and and say what you think first. What, what do you think about the main titles? I like them. I don't love them yet, but maybe that's just because I haven't watched them enough. I feel like titles are something that sort of 
a lot of times they grow on you over time as you watch them and get used to them and associate them with the feeling of watching the show. I was somewhat pleased that the music they chose is similar to the style of the music in our podcast intro because we chose that before the titles were released. So just sort of like guessing what it might be like. So that was nice. I think the titles do a good job blending different kinds of symbols, the old and the new, and setting up the surreal feeling of a lot of the show. I think that, you know, the vagina nebula that we were talking about earlier might be more surprising if you hadn't seen the titles than if you had. Definitely. I wonder if that affected our interpretation of the first episode at all, because we just kind of went into it. I mean, I watched, we both watched the main titles when they first came out, so we had seen them. But I guess it would kind of get you in the mood, though, right? It is, I think, different, you know, watching the main titles on YouTube and then watching the episode a week and a half later versus having it precede the show by, you know, seconds. Right. I think for me, like there's a trend in television these days to have very, very short opening sequence, like kind of like Lost is probably the most super minimalist where it just has the letters. So I think part of that is that, you know, back before the internet, the main titles Mm -hmm. were how you knew what the actors were. And that was how they got their name out. Whereas now with IMDb, the main titles aren't important. You don't need to see pictures by names because if you want to figure out who plays Shadow or who Ricky Whittle is, you can just look it up. Right. In general, I am not a fan of that minimalist opener. I don't like that. Because I like things that are big and bold. I really like the opening for like the Netflix Marvel shows like Jessica Jones and Luke Cage. Those openers are so fantastic. I love them so much. So I Are you thought, saying that this one wasn't big and bold enough for you? No. Because yeah, you're right. You know what I'm saying. Be cloud is not bold enough. <laughs> the, I don't know. There's I like think... a spaceship and a cowboy. I feel like I don't know. Like I'm not saying you have to love them, but I'm saying I feel like they went pretty bold. That that is my whole feeling about this. Like I watch it and and I'm like, this is as if I talked to a focus group and said, this is what I want for opening thing, and they made it. And then I'm like, I don't like it. Like <laughs> I feel like some kind of shithead when I watch this. I don't understand why I don't love this, but I but I don't, and I I can't figure it out. I don't know if it's because I am touchy about religion in general because. I love reading about it so much, and it's such an important part of who I am. Even though I'm not very religious personally, there are elements of our our culture that are on the attack for anything religious as like magical thinking that is worthless. And so I have my guard up for anything that like, we're going to show a menorah, and then we're going to show that it's like USB cables and stuff. And then I'm like, you're disrespecting this and you're disrespecting that which is part of the point like it's it's this evolution like i get it i'm curious i want to revisit this at the end of episode 10 and see how you feel about them because like i hated the game of thrones title sequence when it the first time i saw it i thought it was boring you have to like if you taste a new food that you don't like if you just eat it seven times eventually you'll like it sometimes exposure helps that's true i'll let it I'll check back in. We'll see. 
we'll see okay. how it how it goes at the end. Okay, so now that we're wrapping it up, it's time to highlight one way that we think the show failed to live up to the book and one way that we think the show surpassed the book. So Alan, what was your biggest disappointment? We talked about it a little bit. The uh, whole thing with Mr. Nancy knowing the future makes me very worried about the world building. I, I want the showrunners to be careful about that. I don't want it to be swept under the rug and ignored when we see Mr. Nancy again. And I feel like there's no other way to deal with it than that. So Yeah, I'm kind of with you on that. I feel like the prologue in some way kind of needs to exist outside the rest of the show, like as an alternate universe imagining of it. Yeah. What about you? For me, I'm also going to bring up something that we talked about before. Just the whole thing with Bilquis in the museum. I didn't get it. And I hope, I really hope that it's something that will make more sense once we learn more about Bilquis and what her role in the story is that maybe after we've watched the whole series and are coming back, we'll look at that scene and it'll be like, oh, that's what that meant. But right now, it just, it didn't work for me. And it felt like a a waste of time when basically everything else in the episode was so good. Yeah. And I don't know if we're just checking in with her because they feel like we have to, or if that's also a part of the structure that we need to anticipate. I mean, I felt like there were parts of the episode with her where it shows her going through all of her different, I don't know, victims is the right word, but like the people she's seducing and consuming and the, I can't believe I'm saying this for the third time, but Vagina Nebula, (laughs) Um, (laughs) that whole surreal scene, like that worked for me and that I thought was really good. It was just the part in the museum that I didn't like. And, And because she was in those other parts as well, you can't really say like, oh, well, she had to be in the episode, so we had to do that. That's true. Yeah. So what was your favorite improvement or innovation? I loved the entire thing with Shadow going back to his house and picking up all of the all of Laura's stuff. That does not happen in the book, for one thing. Uh, he never goes back. He says he'll just leave it for his um, mother-in-law to deal with because he's mm-hmm. too weirded out by all the stuff that's happening. There's two things I love about it. The confidence that the director has... We are definitely in Shadow's POV where we get the whole thing, where we see a thing, we go over his shoulder and through his body, and then we see the objective truth of the scene of what's really there. And, you know, the empty Mm -hmm. rumpled bed versus Laura being in it. And that is all of that stuff. There's never any dialogue. It's something that you can only do in a visual medium because this is like a silent movie for this whole part. There's no dialogue at all. It's all about how Ricky Whittle's face looks, his body language, the music, the and the images. And they are playing to their strengths in that scene, and I loved it. I loved every second of it. I thought it was fantastic. I really loved it, too. I thought it did such a good job of communicating his emotions and his internal life as he's going through this. I mean, he's been in prison for three years, This is his first time back in his house that he shared with his wife who just died. You can see him being hit with all of these memories and reliving it, but it doesn't feel heavy handed at all or overly dramatic. And I love too the way it kind of sets up this confrontation between Shadow and like the box of stuff from the corner. Oh yeah. That was just like so well done. 
It was. And then that, that moment where he finds the cell phone, which is another one of those things we talked about that they were going to have to account for cell phones and stuff. And you knew mm-hmm. as soon as he touches that cell phone, you're like, oh, no, he's going to go looking. Because how can he not go looking? Yeah. But he should. I mean, he has to know. Right. But it's terrible. And then when he sees it on the iPad across the room, he sees the picture. You know that it's not really there. But in his mind, that's how it is. Now he's going to see it all the time. And uh, yeah, it it was just great. It made me so much uh, happier about the the entire show. That whole sequence, I was like, okay, I completely trust these storytellers. I'm in for it. Whatever you're going to give me. How about you? What was... What was your favorite improvement? So my one of my favorite things that was added from the book is actually something that I didn't notice until my boyfriend pointed out to me. But the whole scene when they're leaving Eagle Point and they turn off to avoid the highway, they have this whole back and forth between Shadow and Wednesday about the speed of the car. And so you know that the car is going about 70 miles per hour. And then as the camera pulls away, you see the shadow of a crow flying next to the car. And you hear the crow calling. Uh, He pointed out that that's probably one of Odin's crows. Oh. And it like, yeah, it totally blew my mind. I was like, oh, yeah, they totally stuck that in there. I should know this, the airspeed velocity of a crow, but I don't. (laughs) Should you? We'll look that up for next time. (laughs) Yeah, so I really liked I really liked that image of the the crow silhouette flying along with the car and just the the acknowledgement that that like yes, there's something supernatural happening here. Crow should not be able to keep up with a Cadillac like that. Yeah. Um, I didn't even think about that. I just thought it was like an interesting thing, but yeah, you it's totally true because he's going 70 miles an hour. Yeah. 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 I also I really liked the the physicality of the scene with Shadow taking the bubble bath. And so this is actually something that was that was taken from the book because in the book when we we have the insight into Shadow's thoughts, he's thinking about the first thing that he wants to do and he gets out is take a bubble bath, which I love as mm-hmm. like again a statement of his masculinity is not threatened by these kinds of things. But then when he's, he's just such a large man in such a tiny bathtub as a small woman, that's like not something that I had ever had to consider that like you might just not fit into a bathtub and he's, you know, <laughs> feeling he's really still injured from his altercation with the technical boy. And so he's just like in a lot of pain and trying to fit in this tiny bathtub and like have this bubble bath experience. And I just love the way that that was represented on the screen. I thought Ricky Whittle did a great job with that. So before we sign off this week, we want to talk about some of the feedback that we received from you, our listeners. So who do we have first? Uh, We got an email from Vivian. Uh, one of the co-hosts of Fork and Bullshirt. It's a podcast about The Good Place. You guys should check that out. Look in our show notes. You can find links. Uh, she said, I agree with you two that the pilot didn't really establish the premise. Jason was watching with me. That's her co-host and uh, her boyfriend. And he was confused because he hasn't read the novel. Well, I'm glad Vivian agreed with us on that because I think as you'll here in some of the correspondence that comes later, other people thought we were being a little too harsh. 
Yeah, but it seems like the the boyfriend experiment translates across different people's experience. Um, <laughs> I didn't even think about. Yeah, we're both doing the same boyfriend experiment at the same time. Um, I I talked to some of my family too, and <clears throat> there are people who have not read the book, and they were equally as confused. So, if you are not familiar with the promotional material or the book, it really was leaving people in the dust. Most of the people who I talk to are actually super fans of the book, so I'm glad to hear that there are other people who felt the same way we did. Yep. So Vivian went on to say, I don't know how I feel about the change in Shadow's tone on the plane. In the novel, he's polite, but not overly friendly with Wednesday. I kind of like that he wanted to keep to himself. He felt more open and relaxed in the show. What do you two think? Yeah, I well, I definitely agree that the tone is really different. Uh, I don't remember in the book them going back and forth and sort of sharing that we're both kindred spirit Conan moment. And yeah, I don't know. What do you think? I know in the book, Mr. Wednesday is a little bit more alien. I think one of my favorite lines about him is that it was as if he learned to smile from a manual and like all the descriptions about him are kind of animalistic. Like he has paws, uh, he growls, he leers. So he's like kind of weirder in the book and he's not charming at all. But Ian McShane is really playing up the charm. Do you think they changed the tone to match Ian McShane's particular style of acting? Or do you think they cast him because that was what they wanted? He's really good at doing the charming bit. In Deadwood, he's also really, really good at the intimidating, kind of deadly, uh, playing it that way. I think they're definitely writing to a more charming direction, though, right? Yeah. I think that it's good in the show, though, because the two of them together were kind of the highlight of the episode for me. Yeah, and I think, too, it makes sense that Shadow would be sort of weird and standoffish, just having gotten out of prison for three years. But I mm -hmm. think you're right. From In the book, we have Shadow's internal thoughts, and in the show, we don't have any of that. So we have to give Shadow more to do outwardly and make him more likable outwardly because we don't have that window into his brain. Yeah, and that reminds me of I, I saw like some other comments and some people told me personally that when we were talking about how uh, Shadow is passive that they were kind of thinking that we were criticizing the writing or the show in some way. And I think it's important to remember that going forward, that he is transitioning out of being passive into having more agency as a person. Well, I think having a really passive protagonist is a criticism that a lot of people lobby against certain works. Mm -hmm. Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. There's an interesting episode of Pop Culturally Deprived on that, if you want to go check it out. <laughs> and But I think here we weren't saying that. I think having a passive protagonist makes it more difficult to write a good story, but I don't think it makes it impossible. It's one of those rules that you're allowed to break if you're really good. If you're Neil Gaiman, you can right. get away with it. Um, and that's actually a conversation that I want to have later 
um, about how Shadow functions as the protagonist, or if Shadow and Wednesday are kind of functioning as like a group dual protagonist. Um, but we'll save that for another time. Yeah, excellent. Cool. Vivian went on to say my favorite change from the book was Audrey as well, which just means that Vivian is factually correct in her observations. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so next I got a text message from my wonderful friend Christian in LA who said, I was surprised you didn't talk about the end with the tech helmet. I just used a 3D visor for the first time and was thinking about that. I haven't had a chance to use any virtual reality technology. Yeah, I didn't know what to make of it. I, I think it, at that point, I was just super off balance. I was like, what is even happening? But it looks really cool when we tight up on his eyeball and you can see like the triangles and all this stuff. Uh, it's really interesting. I don't. What did you think of it? It was definitely really surprising, especially coming from the book where there's no helmet. The technical boy actually just pulls up in a real limo. I liked it better this way because I think it makes it more mysterious and more magical. Yeah. But I don't have anything particularly, I think, interesting to say about it other than that. Although I will say I have used VR stuff. I went to a demo mm -hmm. at a tech party and it was really fun. I thought it was going to be kind of lame, but it was really fun. It looks cool. I, I hope that if I ever do use um, virtual reality stuff, that it is nothing like that because it is completely terrifying. So Christian goes on to say... One thing about the final scene with the lynching, I think that was Fuller's way of showing what the Strange Fruit dream was. Strange Fruit being, of course, the song Billie Holiday popularized in which the Strange Fruit is lynched black men in the South. Yeah, and we get a reference to that at the top of this episode. Mm -hmm. But that's correct. That's from Chapter 2 and the Strange Fruit hanging in the bone orchard. Um, it's literally called Strange Fruit. Uh, and Neil Gaiman is kind of making reference to that song. Yeah. So I think maybe that's one way that the show is drawing those same connections, but in a different way, because the book references strange fruit in the bone orchard. And then in the show, they can't really do that since it's just a visual image. Mm -hmm. um, and you can't really make the same reference to a specific phrase. So then they have the lynching instead and then have shadow use the language to talk about what happened to himself um, and so i just want to mention a little bit more about the song it was written by lewis allen maurice pearl and Dwayne wiggins it was first sang and recorded by billy holiday in 1939 and it's a really great haunting song um so the first verse goes southern trees bear strange fruit blood on the leaves and blood at the root black bodies swinging in the southern breeze Strange fruit hanging 
from the poplar trees. And yeah, I think it's a pretty evocative phrase for most Americans who know the song. But then I'm not sure how well-known it actually is among people of our generation. I had this weird moment at one point in graduate school there was a dance troupe from Australia that came to perform and their name was Strange Fruit. Ooh. Yeah, and so oh, I was like, I was sitting there and I was just like, uh, so like the dance troupe, what they did was really cool. They sort of were like on these giant poles and swinging around. And like, I understand what they were trying to say because it is, they're wearing colorful costumes and doing these things while swinging around on these poles back and forth that's kind of like fruit hanging from trees and it's strange but yeah i guess <laughs> but it was, it was just like <laughs> i'm watching this beautiful dance performance and just like thinking about lynchings and i don't think that's what they were going for <laughs> um, oh that's that's awful <laughs> may have been their first time to the states outside of australia they needed a PR person to be yeah, like, whoa, so be like, no, 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 change your name. <laughs> oh, man. We got some more feedback. Becca Eller on Twitter, at the underscore Becca Eller. Did the whole cast feel hypersexualized to anybody else? Everyone is beautiful, but I think the show was set on me objectifying them. But they are also really beautiful people. To me, it seems like the show is really set on having a certain sense of physicality mm -hmm. and everything is sort of turned up to 11 and it's not just the sexual part right it's like when shadow is injured the blood is also really intense and you really like feel his body hurting the way mm -hmm. that he feels it hurting and when Bilquis is having sex, we feel like super sexual the same way that she's feeling super sexual. I think it's, um, yeah, it's definitely a sort of over the top enhanced perspective, but I think it's on almost every aspect, not just the sexual aspect. But that does kind of acknowledge that it is also there too. So like, if you're looking at everybody and getting all your switches flipped, then I think that that's what Brian Fuller wants, you know? Yeah, but I think they also take a lot of opportunities to to sh be unsexy, like, particularly with Audrey when she's, like, super drunk and pissing on her <laughs> uh, dead husband's grave. I love the scene of her, her, her just, like, hopping along while she's pulling her tights back up. It's, like, the unsexiest <laughs> thing that I've ever seen, and it's so perfect. So Mandy K at Mandy K on Twitter said, I'm so bummed you guys didn't love it. <laughs> um, I know that after she said that, we piled on to her a little bit on Twitter and we were like, you're wrong. But uh... I, I don't think we did that. I think I just I pointed <laughs> I out that we acknowledged her. we were being negative. Yeah. And I think we came back from that and expressed a lot of love. Yeah, I I did enjoy it more. The more that I've watched the pilot, the more I enjoy it. But I do think it's really uneven and has a lot of problems, especially compared to this episode. 
I know from listening to Mandy's show that she can be really critical about movies and TV too. And Mm -hmm. so I think when you're watching something, knowing that you're going to have to talk about it, you're looking at it with a more critical eye than if you're just sitting down to enjoy it. So if I had been sitting down just to watch this for fun, maybe I would have loved it more and not been so picky about some of the uneven pacing and just cramming so much into the first episode that it felt disjointed. It's also worth noting, too, that you can be critical of something without that meaning that you didn't enjoy the experience of it, right? You kind of pick it apart, but that doesn't mean that you are trying to tear it down. And as our our mentor, Lonnie Diane Rich, said earlier this week in a blog post that it's much easier to criticize than to create. So creators should always get more kudos than the people who are criticizing what they made. Totally. Thank you, Brian Fuller. Yes, thank you very much. It was great. (laughs) Um, So Mandy also said, you guys didn't talk about Bilquis very much. And I guess we didn't. There was a ton of talk on Twitter about Bilquis and about Yatide Badaki's performance. And maybe we just didn't say her name because we were afraid of mispronouncing it. And (laughs) that's just us being cowards. Yes. (laughs) Um. But yeah, her performance was fantastic. But I will say the first time I read the book, I did find it very shocking. And actually, I think the person who had me read the book and gave me loaned me their copy of the book when I was in high school did so, I think, specifically because of that scene and because they thought I would like it. So Neil Gaiman at some point says that he included that scene in the book because he basically he wanted to kick people out of the book who he didn't want to be there. So it was like <laughs> it was like a way to freak people out. Oh my god, like, so it's basically like early on like first couple chapters like mm-hmm. if you can't get through this chapter like you don't need to be reading my book. Yeah, I feel like that might have the opposite function in the tv show getting people to watch it who might not watch it otherwise (laughs) that's true also on twitter we got genie at oblandada she said true grief and honest drunk is not easy to perform so convincingly in response to the audrey scene when we were doing our live tweet and she's completely right yeah oh i i read a thing Brian Fuller or Michael Green put on Twitter that in that scene, when they were filming it, they took Betty Gilpin aside and before they would start rolling, they would spin her in a circle really fast and then like push her into the scene and say, go. So oh she was God. literally like dizzy <laughs> trying She's to do like her really lines. really disoriented. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, also on Twitter, we had... Southern Fried Scholar, at Fried Scholar. She said, amazing visuals, but the gore and blood were too much for me. The best part was the music. I'd like to hear about the significance of the songs. That's a fair point, right? About the blood and gore Mm -hmm. for some people. Yeah, I think it was so cartoonish, especially during the lynching scene where we see you know, these like holes erupting in the technical boys henchmen. Yeah, we I think it's much more visceral in this episode, like when Shadow's getting his side stapled and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, that was like, the that was so intense. Yeah, that's hard to watch. But in the first one, it was like, it was crazy. Like, 
the guy gets punched in the face and he spits out like two pints of blood and you're like, oh, okay. That's crazy. But as far as the music goes, I can't think of any songs that we got with lyrics other than Ico Ico. In the book, he quotes the lyrics to the song. Look at my king, all dressed in red, Ico Ico Unday. I bet you $5, he'll kill you dead. Giacomo Finae. When you just read the lyrics, it's kind of chilling. And to actually get the song that was mentioned in the book is, I think that's kind of a cool Easter egg that they yeah, threw in. Yeah, definitely. And while we're on the subject of music, to pull back the curtain a little, so we recorded most of our episode two several weeks ago, and now we're just coming back to record the feedback. And so I happened to notice that the clip that you put underneath me talking about the cello music, I don't think it's cello. I think it's a oh. bass. <laughs> I'm sorry. So <laughs> please write us. But you don't have to write us about the fact that that wasn't actually a cello because I used to play <laughs> cello. I know that. <laughs> that was definitely a bass. The last thing we want to talk about is a little bit about how race is portrayed in the show and a little bit about our relationship to that as podcast hosts. Alan and I were both white and I think there can be a little bit of danger of us trying to maybe white-splain the views on race that are expressed through the TV show. So I think we've been a little bit careful thus far not venturing out too far and just talking about the things that are pretty obvious and unambiguous. But I wanted to bring up a couple articles. So I wanted to talk about an article by Junito Davis that appeared on the blog Black Girl Nerds. And it was specifically in response to an article by Oliver Sava that appeared on the website Vulture. And so both of these will be in the show notes. Um, but basically, Oliver Sava makes the argument that uh, the image of a noose does appear at different points in this episode, but a visual motif isn't enough to make sense of a scene that plays like an unnecessary attempt to add shock value. If a black character is going to get lynched, American gods better have a good reason for bringing that disturbing act to the screen. And so I think Junita yeah. was really reacting to that and... Uh, she said, I dare anyone to try and kick over a stone in this country's timeline and not find the violent oppression of a person of color. So why not mention this in a movie about culture, assimilation, and the dangers of forgetting where you came from? Racial violence is a vital part of the historical narrative, and depicting it in any form in any culture-themed project is not gratuitous. It's just the truth. Yeah. Yeah, I will admit that the first time watching the lynching scene, it is very shocking and I wasn't exactly sure how I felt about that. I think I decided that what they were trying to say was something about the character of America, and it wasn't a pleasant depiction. But American history isn't always pleasant, especially from the Black perspective that Shadow is coming from. And so I was really curious to see how people of color and specifically black people would react to that. And I'm glad to see that they seem to be on the side that it's not exploitative, that it is actually just showing a side of American history 
that is so often ignored or minimized, but actually is something that they think about all the time. Yeah, this is good to have, you know, this wider experience be the main character's story, right? Usually this is the kind of thing that would be a side story or would impact the main character who is white in some way like, oh, this unjust thing happened to my friend or in this community and I need to avenge it. This is happening to Shadow and it's literally hitting him as hard as it possibly can. It's hitting us. We have to face it and deal with it and the consequences play out. I'm pretty happy with how they're dealing with race, and I'm glad that they're engaging with race. And so one of the things that Oliver Stava brings up in his article, are they trying to make some point about how technology makes it easier for white supremacists to get together and mobilize? And he sort of thinks that they're trying too hard or that maybe there's a little bit of something there, but it wasn't fully fleshed out. And I think that there is something to say not necessarily about how technology aids white supremacism but how we see the sort of like modern technologically well-equipped culture as being anti-racist or unracist and it's actually not that technology and racism are not incompatible oh yeah the technical boy is like all the worst things about the internet, right? Like, he yeah. literally has faceless thugs. I mean, they're like, you know, trolls on the internet or something. Yeah, and the entire entitled way that he acts and how he resorts to threats immediately, it's all that. I mean, that's just all completely online bullying. And his whole personality is, I think, directly comes from that. I think it's just a straight up reference to toxic behavior online. I'm trying to remember the faces of the technical boys henchmen. They're not all the same shade, right? They're like a little bit. Some of them are darker than others. Oh, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. I don't think they're all super white. Like I'm wondering if there's something subtle going on there about colorblindness and how like that's not actually productive or helpful in any way and actually just masks like horrible racism and violence. Mm -hmm. I did see something, and this is maybe a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's correct that his henchmen are like a direct reference to a clockwork orange and the outfits that those guys wear when they're going around town beating people up. So maybe their look is more influenced by that than any kind of particular meditation on, oh, we need to make them all super pale we might be stretching the scene and the metaphor a little bit thin, if, but there's, I mean, there's no doubt, right, that this is racially charged. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess we'll just have to keep an eye on that going forward, and I'll keep trying to highlight articles by people who might be better equipped to tackle this subject than we are. There was uh, also an article on io9 written by uh, Catherine Trendacosta that was talking about a similar theme in the form of cultural appropriation. And in the article, she points out that Bilquis is basically an immigrant to America and that she was more important in her home country than she is in America. And now she's reduced to kind of like begging for worship online and tricking people. Mm -hmm. Whereas she used to be like bedecked in gold and jewels like we see in this episode. 
And uh, the actress, Yatid Badakai, said, uh, sometimes there are feelings of loss that occur because she herself is uh, an immigrant who's a naturalized American citizen. And she said, that might be surprising to some people, but there are feelings of guilt at times. Sometimes you feel like you've escaped a bad situation from your home country. And I've talked to a lot of people that say, yes, in the old country, I was a brain surgeon or whatever. And now they're doing something very, very different in America. So it's kind of interesting the way that there's like an interplay, right, between how great and venerated these gods were in the old country and how now they're like scrappy, uh, poor, they're, you know, they're way down on their luck and they're barely surviving. And that kind of translates to the immigrant experience to a certain degree. Yeah, I totally see that. Uh, And I will have all of those articles in the show notes so that you can uh, click on them and read them yourself. And I highly recommend that you do. They're both uh, excellent articles. And uh, we will try and point you guys towards really thoughtful uh, pieces as we go through episode by episode, because we're reading about this stuff and you know we're we're trying to expand the way that we interpret the text as we go along too so we want to include you guys in that okay well i think that wraps us up for this episode i'm anya and you can follow me on twitter at strangely literal that's strangely and then l-i-t-e-r-l i'm alan and you can follow me on twitter at chipper alan you can follow the show on twitter at shadow shambler and visit our website at shadowsandshamblers.com for news and episode reviews. If you'd like to leave us feedback or you want to tell us something about Slavic culture and mythology, you can visit shadowsandshamblers.com contact or send an email to contact at halloweddgroundmedia.com. Join us next week for episode three, Head Full of Snow, and use the hashtag shamblers to live tweet with us on Sunday night. Don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes. Because if you don't, you'll have to play us in checkers. And nobody wants that. No, but seriously, we're currently ranked 13 out of the approximately 30 American Gods podcasts on iTunes. And that's all thanks to you guys for rating and subscribing to us so far. But let's see if we can move on up that list. Shadow and Shamblers is a hollowed ground media production and is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial share-alike license.